We are about to uh, continue our study in the book of Hebrews. And I love the book of Hebrews because I feel like it's, I love the Old Testament and I feel like the book of Hebrews is a bit of Old Testament smuggled into the New Testament. It's, it's, it's in there. It's a, I've heard that people will sometimes, if, if you're having a hard time getting kids to eat vegetables, you'll bake the vegetables into a chocolate cake. And I think <laughs> Hebrews is a, is a little bit like that. You know, on the surface of all, surface of it, you've got the radiance of the glory of the, the, the revealed Messiah. But underneath there, there's this deep, rich undercurrent of an ancient history that knowing that we see that God's plan of salvation for all people has this wonderful, wonderful history rooted in his relationship with one particular group of people he called to be his own, and that was the Hebrews or the Jews. So it's an amazing story. I love it. So we're going to dive in in chapter 3, and we're going to focus on verses 1 to 6. So let's read those together. Therefore, holy brothers and sisters who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus the apostle and high priest of our confession. He was faithful to the one who appointed him, just as Moses was in all God's household. For Jesus is considered worthy of more glory than Moses, just as the builder has more honor than the house. Now every house is built by someone, but the one who built everything is God. Moses was faithful in all God's household as a testimony to what would be said in the future. But Christ was faithful as a son over his household. And we are that household if we hold on to our confidence and the hope in which we boast. Let's just bow our heads for a moment, shall we? Father God, we're in awe of your word, your revealed word to us. And Lord, as as we bring ourselves to this moment to it, Father, we ask that you'd speak to us in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Notice the Jewishness of the writing here. This is, after all, the letter to the Hebrews. And here, here Jesus is referred to as the high priest of our confession. If you were a Jewish person, that might have been a, a jolting kind of way to talk about the high priest. The high priest was the representative of the people before God, had a unique privilege of ministering in the temple and even to go into the holy of holies, the most holy place where no one else was allowed to go. The high priest could go there once a year. And here we see Jesus has supplanted that role of an ordinary human being and become our ultimate high priest. And one of the themes we're going to see all through the book of Hebrews is how there were various practices and rituals in Judaism and the Jewish faith which found reality, their ultimate meaning in Jesus Christ. And the high priest was one example of that. Jesus has become our ultimate high priest. And you can see perhaps the only thing more Jewish than than this reference to the high priest in this passage are these constant references to Moses. I feel like when you say Moses, you should have to say Moses. Yeah, I think of that Old Testament moment when when Moses is he's 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 spent forty years in Egypt and then he's screwed things up. He's killed a man and he's fled to the far side of the desert and then he spends forty years tending sheep. Incidentally, I'm turning forty years this forty years this year, <laughs> and I'm hoping to avoid the sheep herding phase. I'm just noticing Moses does everything in blocks of forty. I'm like, please not the sheep herding phase. But anyway, Moses is tending his sheep, right? And he sees this burning bush, and it doesn't seem to be consumed, and he goes to it, and he has this encounter with God. And that's where I hear the word Moses. He has this encounter with God. And this begins this incredible journey for this man, who is flawed as any of any human being, just like you and I, but also profoundly faithful. Faithfulness is a key word for us this morning. Remember that word, faithfulness. And so 
we see this reference here to this man named Moses. I think Moses would be like, he is a Jewish superhero. You wouldn't need the Avengers movie in, in the time of Moses. You just need the Moses movie. He, he is God at all. He is the man from a Jewish perspective. And there's a, there's a reference in this passage here. It's, uh, can we bring that back on the screen, Michael? Uh, verses 1 to 6. You'll see it's, it's in there twice. In verse 2, we see that Jesus is described as being faithful in all of God's household. Do you see that? Faithful in all of God's household. Then look at verse 5. Moses was faithful as a servant in all God's household. It's said twice. There's a lot of emphasis here. And in fact, the writer of Hebrews, Paul, sorry, uh, the writer of Hebrews, I think it was Paul, um, is is referring back to uh, the Old Testament. And we're going to the book of Numbers. Who wants to go to the book of Numbers? Woo! Come on! Come with me, everyone. We're going to the book of Numbers, chapter 12. I've never seen people so excited. All right. Come with me here. Miriam and Aaron criticized Moses because of the Cushite woman he married. Now, remember, Miriam and Aaron are a sister and brother of Moses. So we've got a sibling thing going on here. And Moses has married this Cushite woman, which, I'll be honest, I'd be thinking, shouldn't have done that. Shouldn't have done that. I thought God was setting you apart as a people. So Moses and uh, Miriam and Aaron seem unhappy with their brother. Uh, they... They said, does the Lord only speak through Moses? And actually seems to be something more coming out here. Does the Lord only speak through Moses? Doesn't he also speak through us? And the Lord heard it. Uh Uh-oh. Moses was a very humble man, more so than anyone on the face of the earth. How is that for a a descriptor of, 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 of a person? How good would that be? The most humble man on the face of the earth. Suddenly the Lord said to Moses, Aaron, and Miriam, you three... Come out to the tent of meeting. So the three of them went out. And then the Lord descended in a pillar of cloud, stood at the entrance to the tent and summoned Aaron and Miriam. Moses is like, Whew. yeah, oh, these guys, yeah. When the two of them came forward, he said, listen to what I say. If there is a prophet among you from the Lord, I make myself known to him in a vision. I speak to him in a dream. Not so with my servant Moses. He is faithful in all my household. Hear that? Familiar? Yeah. He is faithful in all my household. I speak with him directly, openly, and not in riddles. He sees the form of the Lord. That little phrase has been knocking me around for a week or two now. He sees the form of the Lord? What does that mean? Why then were you not afraid to speak against my servant Moses? Well, Moses is no ordinary guy. He is the most humble man on the face of the earth. And God meets with him in a really special way. We know from other passages in the Old Testament, God said, Moses, you can't see my face. And yet we also see and read that Moses would meet with him and talk with God in a very, very intimate way. And we're seeing a sense of that here. He sees the form of the Lord. The complete Jewish Bible translation translates this phrase. He sees the, for, the, the, he sees the form of the Lord is translated as, he sees the image of Adonai. Does that sound a little familiar? Sound like, who is the image of the invisible God? Who is the exact representation of his being? I'm not sure exactly what Moses was seeing. But I believe in this moment he's encountering Jesus in some way before he took on human form. 
And so Moses has this amazing closeness to God. And that seems to flow out of this attribute of faithfulness, this quality of faithfulness. So what did Moses do? How is he faithful? Well, he listened to God's call to lead a people enslaved to the greatest tyrant of the time, the Pharaoh of Egypt. He led them out, out of slavery. He listened to God's call, said, don't be a sheep herder anymore. I want you to go back to that place you fled and to just do what I say and lead these people out. Then after that, he had brought the people into the desert and then he faithfully received the commands that God had for the people, how he wanted them to live, the law. And then finally, though he never set foot in the promised land himself, he led this grumbling, moaning people for 40 years through the desert until God had them ready, until he had a new generation that was ready to step into the promised land. Moses is an incredible, incredible man, a very faithful man. He's not without his flaws, but he is faithful. And it's interesting, the writer of Hebrews says that Moses was faithful as a servant in all God's house. Why? As a testimony to what would be said in the future. Now, this is another one of those phrases that's been doing my head in a little bit. How do you do something now that's a testimony to what is yet to happen? It's kind of an interesting phrase. When you unpack it, what we understand is that, well, first it says, it's a testimony to what would be said in the future. What would be said in the future? I think the writer of Hebrews has already told us what would be spoken of. In chapter 2, verse 3, he says, this salvation of which he's speaking had its beginning when it was spoken of by the Lord. And it was confirmed to us by those who heard him. So Moses was faithful as a servant in all God's household as a testimony to the salvation that was yet to be spoken of through Jesus Christ. And how did he do that? In lots of ways. So when Moses led the people up out of Egypt, out of captivity, out of slavery, his actions were a testimony to God's plan to bring all people out of slavery to sin. And when Moses followed God's painstaking instructions to set up the tabernacle, this tent of worship where God would come and meet in the midst of the people, he was testifying to God's plan to come and meet with us in an an even more immediate way through his son, Jesus Christ. And finally, when Moses set up the sacrificial system, which required these animals to be killed as, as as an atonement for sin, over and over and over again. He was testifying to the need for something to be done about sin and to be done about sin once and for all. And we're going to read about that in the book of Hebrews in a few chapters' time where we see that Jesus is the absolute fulfillment of the sacrificial system, that that system actually couldn't deal with sin, but it merely pointed ahead to somebody who could, that being Jesus Christ himself. So Moses was faithful in all God's household. He was the man, right? This is one impressive guy. And impressive, and yet the most humble guy on the face of the earth. Wow. (laughs) I don't think I'll be that guy. And yet, Jesus is better. Wow. And yet, Jesus is better. This is what the, the, the writer 
is telling the people, the recipients of this letter, because they, these were Jewish people. They're like, Moses, he is awesome. And the writer is saying, Moses is indeed awesome, and Jesus is better. He's not saying Moses is no good. He's saying Moses is faithful, and Jesus is even more faithful. He is better. How does he, how does he compare them? He says, Moses, or Jesus, has more glory than Moses, just as the builder has more honor than the house. Jesus is the creator. Moses is a created being. Moses was faithful as a servant, but Jesus was faithful as a son. A servant can be incredibly faithful. Moses was wonderfully faithful. But there's something special about being a son. You know when we talk about treating an object or a possession as if it's our own, we, we imply that there's a special treatment there, that you look at after it with extra care. Moses was a servant to God's household, but Jesus as a son is an heir. The household belongs to him. And there's a special bond in that. So there's an implied strength of a bond there. The household actually belongs to Jesus. So Moses was faithful as a servant in God's household. Jesus was faithful as a son over God's household. And we read that this qualified Jesus for greater glory in some way. And I wonder... You've got to wonder, how is that possible? How, how, is, how, how does Jesus get greater glory than a servant? And I guess the one thing, one respect in which Jesus surpassed Moses is that ultimately he gave his life for the house, for the household, for you and I. And we read this in the book of Philippians, which says, Jesus, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing. Taking the very nature of a servant and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. This is how the Son has been counted worthy of greater honor than the servant. And you know what I love here? The Son, though being a son, outserves and outservants the servant. Isn't that amazing? It says, being in very nature God, having all the rights, all the entitlements, all the privileges of God himself, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant. Isn't that amazing? The son outserves the servant. Not only does he outserve the servant, he outservants the servant. That's incredible. And how does he do this? By laying down his life. For us, you might remember at the start of the passage we're reading, it started with a therefore. Therefore, consider Jesus. Why do we consider Jesus? What's the context for that? Remember, the start of this book starts with this just this beautiful, incredible phrase Jesus is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being. He is, as we've just read, in very nature God, and yet he became. Human, He took on flesh and blood, just like you and me. That's how he became 
a servant. That's how he humbled himself. And then he laid down that life he had taken. And because he is God, and because he is God come in human form, the therefore means we can consider him, we can look to him as somebody who is not only above and beyond and sees the big picture of everything going on in our life, the big, the small, the good, the bad, and the really difficult, but he can empathize with it. He understands it. He has been through it. He has been in it. Therefore, consider Jesus. When you and I are put to the test, when we find life difficult ourselves or when we receive devastating news like we heard about before, Jesus is here. Jesus knows us. Jesus is familiar with our suffering. It doesn't just mean he kind of knows about it. He's experienced it because he went to the cross. He knows, Isaiah said, he was despised and rejected by human beings. He knows what it's like to be rejected. He is familiar with our sufferings. Isn't that amazing? And so he outserves the servant. And you know, there's this cool principle. I've been reflecting a lot on life in the universe lately, as you always do. This is not a midlife thing. I just, just, just always in just how I sort of do things. <laughs> and one of the simple principles I observe is that stuff comes from stuff like it. <laughs> Let me explain that. So Jesus might have said, a good, free, a good tree bears good fruit. Yeah? So, or if we think about a painter... A painters, the famous painters have signature styles, right? You see their painting and you go, oh, that's, that's by so-and-so. Oh, I recognize their style. I recognize their work. And in the same way, just as Jesus is faithful and lays down his life and holds on to a hope and a confidence, even as he goes to the cross, he calls us to have those kinds of characteristics, to be like him. To be a Christian is to be a little Christ, not Christ Ian. Yeah? It's to be a little Christ. It's to be like Christ. And I think we see that here in this wonderful verse that, that comes to the application for us out of Hebrews 3 1 to 6. It says this Christ was faithful as a son over his household, and we are that household if we hold on to our confidence and the hope in which we boast. See, Moses was amazing. He didn't know what God's plan of salvation would be, but he lived and he was faithful and he was obedient because he trusted God and he knew there was something yet to come. And in the same way, Jesus went to the cross and we'll see another one of my favorite verses here in this book of Hebrews. It says, he went to the cross scorning its shame. Why? For the joy set before him. Boy, did he know about the cross, but he also looked beyond it. He looked ahead. And in the same way, there's a sense for me in this verse that we look ahead. We are that household. We are like Christ. We are these followers of Christ. We are like him if we hold on to our confidence and the hope in which we boast. Now listen to this. I I want you to turn to your neighbor shortly, and I want you to say a word. I'm going to count to the three, and then I want you to say this word. You with me? Okay. The word is... Paresia. Paresia. One, two, three. Paresia. Paresia. What the heck does that mean? It sounds like Italian, right? Paresia. Hey, 
James talking about his coffee of a latte and a parasia thinks. You know, could it be that kind of thing, right? But it's not that kind of thing. It's Greek, of course. But I'm, I'm loving this word. I looked into it. It means a freedom in speaking. This is why I wanted to speak it. A freedom in speaking, an unreservedness in speech. It means to speak openly, frankly, without concealment. There's no hiding in this. Without ambiguity or circumlocution. There's no beating around the bush. This is being straight. It means to speak without the use of figures and comparisons. Again, down the line. It means to have a free and fearless confidence, a cheerful courage, a boldness and assurance. It means the deportment, the deportment, the manner by which one becomes conspicuous, obvious or out there or secures publicity. This is what's packed into that word, paresia, confidence. And so when the the writer of Hebrews here is speaking about a confidence and holding on to a confidence and holding on to a hope, which we have, he's not saying, good Christian, just hide away in that room of yours and hang on when life gets tough. He's saying, hold on to your out there-ness. This is not a hang in there, it's a stay out there message. Yeah? Hold on to that hope. Hold on to that joy. You ready for another word? Yes, you are. <laughs> okay, this is going to be a, this is going to be easy for the Dutch and the Afrikaans speakers. The rest of you are going to sound like you've got a bad cold. Okay, you ready? On um, three, I want you to turn to the person next to you and say, "Kalchema." All right, one, two, three. Beautiful, beautiful. Okay, who needs a glass of water after that? Yeah, some of us. Incidentally, if you're Dutch or uh, Afrikaans, you will recognize the, the, the word kalchum. It's chewing gum. Yeah, okay. This is kalchema, right? And what does it mean? It means a glorying or a boasting. A glorying or a boasting. Some translations put the word rejoicing in our hope in, into this passage as they try and capture a sense of this. So again, our faith here is not something we hold on to quietly. Christianity is not a silent faith or a silent hope. It's not even a quiet faith or a quiet hope. It is the hope of the world. And people need to know about it. This is what we're called to do. And we are that household. We are the people of God. If like Jesus who is called an apostle of our faith. An apostle means to be a messenger here. We are his household of like him. We declare this message of hope and redemption that God has given us to share with all people. Isn't that cool? You know, let's be honest. Sometimes we don't feel full of that hope, do we? And life can feel discouraging and sometimes maybe it's an experience in life or even an experience of church that can discourage us and lead us to feel tired. And we don't feel effervescent. We don't feel paresia. We don't feel kalchema. I I don't know if if they're still out there. I didn't notice as I came in. Are Are the posters still in the foyer from the Thread Conference? Don't know if they are. If you missed them, you missed out, but I've got good news. I took photos of a couple of them because I was just so enamored of them and I 
I wanted to share a couple of the stories here. If you've heard them before, you just get to hear them again. It's great. Sometimes sharing our faith is not an easy thing. And what I loved about the stories that we saw about there is there are some wonderful good news stories and there were just plain stories where people just crashed and burned. And we can relate to that, can't we? Listen to this. I had a best mate back in college and, and from like year nine, somebody else's voice here, from like, you know, year nine, uh, I always asked him to come along to youth one night with me. And finally in year 13 he came. But at the end of the night as I was taking him home, he turned to me and said, bro, do they only play dumb music there? Safe to say I was pretty cut because that was me leading worship. I think that's funny and sad at the same time, honestly. Uh, Here's a second story. I have a friend who was originally from Auckland who moved to Dunedin to study, and while he was at uni, he met God and became a Christian. For his 21st, he was heading back to Auckland to celebrate with some of his friends and family and thought it would be a great opportunity to share his faith with his family. He got all of his Christian mates real amped and asked them to get praying for God to move. It came to his speech, and so he shared his testimony, and at the end gave an altar call. He had the lights dimmed and said, with every head bowed and every eye closed, I'd just like to give an opportunity for anyone to respond to this gospel message and give their lives to Christ. And no one responded. It was awkward. We may not lead altar calls every day, but I'm sure we've had that kind of experience in sharing our faith and feeling sometimes a silence, Maybe sometimes a polite thanks but no thanks. Sometimes that's good for you, which just feels so much the equivalent of a brick wall. Or sometimes we experience outright hostility. Why do they only play dumb music at your church? What is that all about? Why would I care about that? You know, there's some small print at the end of that last story. It says, but over the next few years, He continued to pray for his family and now every single one of his family members knows God. Isn't that cool? And it's a story of faithfulness. It's a story of perseverance. Sometimes we look and we hope, of course we hope, to see somebody respond warmly and openly to the message of hope that we have, to our paresia, to our confidence to this glorying and the hope that we have. But God is calling us to be faithful when we don't see that. Just as Christ was faithful, consider Jesus is the message here. Consider Jesus who endured such opposition and yet went to the cross. Why? For the joy set before him is looking further ahead. We need to look further ahead and we need to stay faithful. This person kept praying for their family. They kept praying and praying and praying. And how do we stay faithful in this? We do it together. We do it together. Jesus, incredibly, at the start of, in in this letter to the Hebrews, Jesus is described as like a brother to us. I find that gobsmacking as well. This is the Son of God, described as my brother. And we are his brothers and sisters. What does that make us? It makes us a family, like James mentioned moments before. And a family 
comes together at its best when life is tough, when things are difficult. And a family encourages each other when we get rebuffed, when we see a brick wall to our testimony. And a family says, keep on keeping on. A family doesn't just say, hang in there, although sometimes we need that encouragement and that's great. A family also says, get out there. Friends, get out there. We've got a world that needs to know about Jesus. They have to know the hope that we have. The writer of Hebrews uh, will probably get this in next week's message. He's about to write, encourage one another daily. We have to encourage one another. That's how we sustain each other in our faithfulness. In a few chapters, he'll say, spur one another on and don't give up meeting together. Why? Because as God's household, we stand together. If you have a, a door and a window and a pile of bricks, but they're all separate, you don't have a house, you have a recycling yard. We're not a recycling yard, we're a house. We come together, we fulfill our functions, we support each other, we encourage one another. This is what we're called to be faithful in. You know, last weekend, uh, Catherine and I were in Auckland to visit family and it was awesome. And we had a good time. And on Sunday night, we were ready to jump on the plane to come back home again. And we'd heard that there was bad weather in Wellington. Surprise. And we jumped on the plane. And I usually enjoy plane time. It's a quiet time just to be still for a moment. But when you know that, that there's bad weather ahead of you, kind of, you know, <laughs> there's something just <laughs> sitting out there that's nagging you a bit. And uh, I thought, well, okay, before we got it, get on, let's take a quiet moment. And Catherine and I prayed together because we don't, we don't like that stuff, right? Who likes that? Who likes a bumpy landing into Wellington? So we, we took a moment to pray. And then I heard our flight was delayed. And I thought, well, that's great because sometimes maybe that's an answer to prayer. The weather sometimes as night goes on comes down, right? I thought maybe that's an answer to prayer. And I jumped on the Met Service app and it said severe weather warning for Wellington. And it said winds 140 kilometers per hour rising to severe gale. How is 140 kilometers per hour not already a severe gale? Anyway, we get on the plane, and sure enough, as we near Wellington, you start to get these judders, these shult, these jolts, shults, jolts. And I, so I put my book away, and I just close my eyes, and I say, God, I understand why you might, for whatever reason, not want to give us a smooth landing that we asked for into Wellington. But what I also know is that you don't want me to be in fear or a state of anxiety at any point in life for any reason. And so, God, I'm going to ask you for peace in this. And it turns out Catherine pretty much slept through it, that landing. It got bumpy, it got jolty, and I was at peace. And the only time I, I really uh, got distracted from that moment with God is I sort of cracked my eye open to see what the lady next to me was like. <laughs> and she was like on her phone. I was like, what? How is she doing this? And it got jolty and it got bumpy and we landed. And, uh, and we hit the ground and we're taxiing towards the terminal and everyone's breathing a sigh of relief. And I said to the lady next to me, I said, I don't, how could you be on your phone during that? I, I was just thinking, I couldn't even admit she was writing on it. I was like, how are your fingers even hitting the right places? We're bouncing around like this. She said, I was just trying to distract myself. And she said, it was almost one of those ones where you would just want to grab onto the stranger next to you. And I thought, you know, a, a phone might get you through a bumpy landing, but where do you look? What do you distract you with? 
yourself with? Where do you fix your eyes when life gets really hard? Is it here? The church has a role to play. It's a critical role. And more than that, we need to fix our eyes on Jesus, who's familiar with all of that. She said, I might have needed a stranger to grab hold on. We're not meant to do life alone. We're meant to do life together and to encourage each other. And so I encourage you to take every opportunity within the church to get connected in the church. This is a great start. You're here. Awesome. Join a life group if you're not in a life group. Uh, I've got, a, I've got a, a, a WhatsApp group that encourage, encourages each other. We do that as a life group. We do that as a guy's prayer group that I'm a part of. And we meet during the week as well. Uh, if, if you're not planning to already register for our Track to the Future 100-year celebration, get plugged in. It's going to be awesome. And we're going to remember God's faithfulness and we'll be encouraged and we'll be built up in our faith. And we'll, if we're lacking any, regain our paresia. One final brief word before we close. I recently had an opportunity to share my testimony at, at work with a group of, of managers, about 15 of them. I sort of wrangled it in there. <laughs> we had to open this away day with saying something about ourselves. So I got my testimony in there and I shared a few things. And then at the lunchtime break, a couple of people came up to me and one, one of them was a woman and she said, uh, my mother is a fundamentalist and I was just waiting for her to say the word Christian. I was just waiting for this just to go south. And she said, atheist. And she said, I was raised in an atheist household and all of that stuff was completely off limits. Uh, and, you know, I could, my mother would freak out if she knew I was talking to you about this. And we started to get into a good discussion. And uh, I wasn't quite sure where she stood in all of this but she said at the end, I was like, I wonder where this is going to go. And she said, you know what? I guess what I'm saying is I need a guide through this. I need somebody to help me, someone to help me explore this. And I just thought, wow. And so now I'm praying for her. And I said, well, how about I send you something to read? You can read it and then we'll get together and we'll start talking about this stuff. She said, great. I don't know how that story is going to end. But I want to encourage you to stand firm in your faith. To keep encouraging one another. And to put our confidence in God out there for everybody to hear because they need to hear it. What do you reckon? All right. Let's bow our heads. Father God, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for your eternal, enduring word that is, is relevant today as the day you first spoke it. And Father, I thank you for the hope and the confidence you've given us in your Son, Jesus Christ, that it is a hope that never fails and never perishes and that sustains us through difficult times in life. I thank you for the family of the church and that we support each other, that we uphold each other. And so, Lord, we commit ourselves into your hands now and I pray, Lord, that your word would only deepen itself within us, that you would continue to do a good work in us. In Jesus' precious name, amen.